All right, welcome back to another episode of the Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Lane. <laughs> and that sound can mean only one thing. That's that I'm joined by my good buddy, Chris Dimpers. Chris, what's up? How you doing, guys? Today's beer is New Belgium 1985 IPA. Best year there is, 1985. From where? New Belgium. There you go. Are we doing beer today? I did. Are you asking the stupid questions now, <laughs> yeah, too? Yeah, Andrew, what's going on? <laughs> I was wondering if we were going to do anything else, so I thought we were just oh, talking Oh, yeah, I just, we're drinking today. Fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, who wants to tell me what we're talking about for real? Um, I'll hit it. Um, so today we're going to talk about load. I know we mentioned it a little bit in our last episode. And what we're going to talk about is the component of how we load somebody, most of our clients, how we adjust those loads, how we change them depending on what setting we're in, rehab versus performance. We're going to talk a little bit about how we estimate loads. So for example, how Andrew decides where he's going to start with a client or how to progress them. And then we'll finish off a little bit talking about something that I think we have very similar opinions on. Um, maybe a little different depending on, on who you talk to, but one repetition maximums and if they're beneficial in, in sort of the area of health and fitness that we're in. Sounds good. Did I miss anything? I don't think I missed anything. I think we got I think it. So. Yeah. I'm going to start off since uh, I'm the pedant in the group. I like to be pedantic. Uh, you <laughs> we're going words, to <laughs> please. <laughs> we just learned a new word today, guys. Uh, I mean, we heard a new word. I don't know if we, we learned heard. it. <laughs> Chris is going to forget it by the end of the podcast with all the beer yeah. he's having. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if I say load or intensity or any of these other names we come up with, what do you guys, what's, yeah, what's your, uh, what is it to you? Well, to me, it's, it's two different things. You know, I think intensity to me, um, is different than the load you know to me load is the actual volume you know the amount of weight that we're going to be pushing um intensity can be uh increase on whether you're decreasing the rest time in between sets um you know adding a circuit to it so to me that's where i see the difference between the intensity and load yeah i i agree with chris um what i would add is for me the load is the what you see on the outside. The intensity is sort of inside. You, you What you perceive as intensity can be different. So Andrew could be squatting 225. I can be squatting 225. But depending on where we're at in our training um, age or, or whatever it is, it may be harder for me to do that than it might be for Andrew. Um, and sometimes they can be related, right? Something that is a heavier load can be more intense or vice versa, depending like some of the stuff that we've worked with Andrew, like BFR and stuff that could be really low loads and really intense just because you have this massive turn or this tourniquet on your leg, um, that makes it a little bit harder to do the task that you're doing. Yeah. And I think it's kind of important to talk about exactly what we mean by these terms, because, uh, for example, intensity in the scientific literature, I'm sorry, I got some beeping, but in the scientific literature, Intensity means something very specific, and it used to kind of mean load. You backing that and ass up there, Andrew? That <laughs> apparently, we've got. I don't know what's going on out here, uh, but it means something very specific. So when someone says, 
you know, this was an intense workout or you see a lot of marketing stuff, you know, we're using something that's high intensity from a, my brain thinks actually that's very low intensity. If we're not doing a lot of rest and we're not using a lot of weight and we're going for a long time, that's low intensity. But they seem to be talking more about like heart rate or like you guys are saying how you feel more so than an actual standard definition. So I like to use the term load and refer more to the something external that we can measure. Yeah, I guess with us, with the rehab side of things, we use a rate of perceived exertion a lot, and we can get into that a little bit more. Um, But, you know, it's, yeah, definitely to me, load is just the the actual volume. Uh, I saw an interesting thing on Squat University today. They posted uh, the things strength athletes overvalue. Oh, I saw that. Weight on the bar, weight on the bar, weight on the bar. Things strength athletes undervalue. The process of building strength, technique, quality, recovery from heavy training. I agree with that. I don't know if yeah. Andrew does. I agree with that a little bit. Yeah. I, yeah, for the most part. So I just thought it was interesting seeing that, especially since we're talking about load today. Yeah. So for so I know Andrew's a stickler for load. How important is it for you in, in what um, in your practice or in your uh, performance? How important is it? So would you say he's pedantic on load? Pedantic. Pedantic. I looked up the definition. Hold on, really quickly for people that don't know. It says of oh or God. like a pendant. That doesn't tell me anything. Pedant, whatever. (laughs) Many of the essays are long, dense, and too pedantic to hold great appeal. Similar words are precise, exact, over-exacting, perfectionist, (laughs) finicky. Is there a picture of Andrew right next to that? (laughs) I guess. Egghead. It it, it means pain (laughs) in the ass. There we go. Scholarly. (laughs) <laughs> okay. It was big in guess, the 1800s nice and then kind of went down. There's a nice little graph here that tells you how it has been used over time. It's actually kind of cool. So <laughs> old and outdated and annoying. So Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> well, see you guys next time. <laughs> All right. Circling back. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So uh, the... In terms of load for what I do, uh, it's going to track pretty closely with what we're working on. And so if we're using lighter loads, and usually the range for that is going to be somewhere around like 70 to 80% of one repetition max. Uh, we're going to be working a little bit more on what we call strength endurance and higher reps, maybe around 10 reps or so. And as we get higher loads, we're going to decrease the reps. There are some exceptions to that. If we're going to work on, say, power or that force times velocity where we have a speed component to what we're doing, we might have to use lighter loads with jumping, maybe unloaded uh, or just your body weight. Uh, Some other exercises, it might be 30, 40% of your one repetition max. If we're talking about clean and jerk or snatch, that's up closer to 80 to 90% of your one repetition max. And so it just kind of, it's going to, follow closely with what we were talking about last week for that periodization and wherever we are in that periodization plan is going to affect what we're using for load. Yeah. And then I, I think this is important for all that we do. Anyone in, in the fitness world, I think it's very important how we load someone. And I think that's one of the big um, 
things that I have against PTs is that we don't load people appropriately, sufficiently, or in the most efficient manner. Um, you'll see someone who's there for ACL rehab and they'll do straight leg races, bridges, box squats for eight weeks. Um, and that just isn't an efficient time uh, or an efficient use of time or loading them properly to get them back to sport. Um, I think another realm where load is important is injury prevention. And we spoke about this a little bit before we started the the podcast, but something that many health professionals and like performance coaches are beginning to look at from an injury perspective is that like uh, a cunic, acute to chronic workload. Um, and one of the big guys right now in it is Tim Gabbett out of Australia. And do you want me to go into this any further, Andrew? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. I okay. think it's interesting. So essentially what it is, so the gist of it is that acute workload, it could be one workout, it could be a week of workouts, right? Um, so in this case, we'll make it one week. Um, it should not exceed the average of the last, let's say, three to four weeks um, by more than a ratio of two. So I'm going to break it down a little bit easier to understand. So for example, we're going to use like a run workout because it'll just make it easier for all of us. Um, so over the last four weeks, you've averaged four miles. So essentially every week you're running four miles a week. So that could be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you're running a mile. That'll be your chronic workload. That'll be four miles. Okay. So if you were to average eight miles in one week, your acute workload is now eight miles and therefore your ratio is two. What the research says that anything over two increases your risk for injury. That could be weights, that could be running, that could be sprinting, that could be jumping, that could be plyometrics, that could be anything. Anything over two now increases your risk for injury. Obviously, our, wor our acute workload, we want to increase little by little because that's the only way to get our chronic workload to increase. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I want to clarify a little bit here. Yeah. So ratio of two, if we're talking about load uh, in a resistance training setting, we'd be talking about weight. So, yeah, I can definitely say you wouldn't want to double yeah. the, the weight. Uh, is this more about volume or workload? Exactly, yeah. So, it'd be okay. more volume. So, for example, like uh, for those that don't know vo what volume is, it's like the amount of weight that you lifted times how many times you lifted it, right? So, if you lifted 10 pounds 10 times, that's 100 pounds, right? You wouldn't want to exceed that the next workout by doing 200 pounds in terms of volume because now you've doubled your your acute workload and therefore your body may or may not be able to tolerate that um i think the bigger issue is when you've done when you do that consecutively right when you go okay you're gonna run two miles then four miles and six miles and eight miles in a consecutive like week that's where you can get into some issues with injury and that's what we want to try to avoid have they done any work in terms of increasing load resistance on a bar? Uh, because one thing that I th I think we know, and you guys correct me on this, uh, that your tendons are actually going to adapt slower than your muscle. So you can actually get stronger muscle. Your muscle can get stronger, but the tendons haven't adapted yet. And that's where if we increase that that load too quickly so you, uh, you can end up with tendonitis yeah. and, and things like that yeah yeah i don't um, know if they have any like studies specifically covering those i know a lot of what he does is more like your plyometrics your running stuff like that i'm gonna get back to you on that 
I'll let you know for the next episode if if he does have anything or if if there is anything on that. But yeah, essentially you don't want to exceed the capacity that you've built for your not only muscles but your tendons which tend to be the issue when we're talking about running, jumping, your sports, right? So I guess yeah, for you know, especially the rehab setting, you know, it's the importance of load is going to vary patient to patient. You know, if you have an older person, knee injury, knee replacement, you're not going to be tossing a ton of weight on there. It's more of getting that range of motion back. At the start. I think that's the decision. Yeah, at the beginning. At the start, yeah. you don't want to be loading yeah. them heavily. You're, you have other things that you are concerned about. But as you get ready to discharge or getting ready to end the plan of care, I think load is a big part of getting someone back yeah. to what they and need like to be able to get back to. And like you were saying, with a lot of unfortunately in some cases coming from PT they're not pushed hard enough or the patient like we talked about late or uh, back in periodization being a little lazy not doing the extra homework so by the time they get to me we're still having to work on range of motion unfortunately so it's normally it's almost like another eight weeks before I'm really looking at increasing the load with those patients uh, but you know with newbies, uh, it's getting that, you know, neuro pattern going first. Like we talked about earlier, it's about, you know, what, six-week window. And six then start seeing uh, a big difference in needing to increase the load. So with you all um, doing what you do and rehabbing injuries, a lot of the people you all see probably are not capable of lifting heavy loads, at least relative to what they could if they were healthy. So what are some ways that you all are utilizing lighter loads to, and still trying to, say, increase strength or range of motion and things you need to do to get these people back to their normal lives? Would you like to go first, Chris? Yeah, sure. You know, a lot of it is I'm looking at what, what they're doing in daily living. Um, so, you know, if, if we still have the, let's say, the 70-year-old, you know, they, they're still pretty active um, you know, likes to golf and everything like that. So I'm going to tailor the workout more towards their daily living activities. Um, so that'll obviously differ with the load. Um, so say if they come in with knee injury and we're working on golf swing, uh, there's a lot of hip motion with it that I want to make sure is stable first before we start really going into, you know, a heavy leg press or anything like that because i mean you're generating a lot of power through the legs in that golf swing as well uh, so keeping that up is always really important with the balancing out the hip strength yeah i mean to to build off of that i think it, it and you said this before chris it, it's going to depend um if i have someone who's post-operative there's really limitations set on what I can and can't do. So for example, if it's a rotator cuff, we're limited for the first 12 weeks on what we can do. But once we get to the point where we can start to load them, you want to make sure that you're loading them enough, that you're sort of taxing the system enough. Um, but you also want to make sure that you're, you have other modalities you can use. So one of the ones that we're familiar with is like BFR, which is big in, in the rehab setting because you can recreate those stressful environments 
that can sort of cause that cascade of events that you see when you have um, higher load training or higher resistance training, but at lower loads. And we can talk about BFR a little later, but that's one that we use in the clinic a lot. BFR is one. And then two, we talked about this, um, might've been the first or second episode. We manipulate some of the variables, right? So where you may manipulate Andrew, like strength versus power versus speed versus all those other things, we'll manipulate two legs versus one leg. We'll manipulate the load. We'll manipulate other things with that same load um, to challenge them a little bit more and sort of help not slow them down, but um, get them to a point where they're comfortable with that load before we advance it, whether that's because of restrictions set by the surgeon or whether that's restrictions because of pain or or what it might be. Yeah. So this might change the topic a little bit, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe be a uh, little contentious. Uh, so I've had two or three experiences of physical therapy now in my life. And I'll just tell you what the experience was like uh, going. I was brought in and it's a big room full of people, uh, patients and a couple of techs and, or a physical therapist walking around. And basically someone came up to me and said, okay, and this was for my neck injury that I had and said, we're going to do lat pull downs. And they put me on the machine and they put 50 pounds on it and they walked away uh, and probably didn't take time to, to recognize that I can go into the gym and load up over 200 pounds on a lat pull down and do, use good technique and control and do the exercise. And so, uh, quick, as you can understand, probably became pretty frustrated with that and was wondering why, <laughs> why are you having me do this? I had a hip injury, I has very similar experience. Um, and it was uh, even kind of telling them and explaining them that situation. And it was kind of like, oh, well, you know, just do it. Um, so, Leading into my question, you kind of address that and how you guys handle that situation. But uh, I think the bigger question is how are you all assessing load and the difficulty for your clients? And um, you know, do you have any objective measures or subjective measures that you use? Yeah, so a lot of times I, uh, I do it in the initial assessment. So we'll just do manual strength muscle testing. Which I disagree with, but we'll talk about that in another okay. episode. <laughs> <laughs> it gives oh. me, to me, it gives me a good idea of where some strength is, um, which, yeah, obviously there are some flaws with it, but I'd say with the older population, it gives me a pretty good idea. We'll go through some just uh, basic core exercises, bridges, and stuff like that. So I'm looking for how they're moving, uh, looking for that knee valgus and everything like that. It's going to tie into a little, a few other things to balance out with it. Um, so after that, then it's basically going through a basic routine and starting them off with what I, you know, and I think we were talking about this a little earlier. It's just, once you've been doing it for a while, you kind of are able to gauge where someone might be to start them off with weight. And we'll start them off a little bit lower I want them to get used to the technique of the machine first is normally what I tell them. Uh, so it might feel a little easy, but first set, let's just get used to the machine and how it moves. And then we'll, we may bump it up from there, but typically I'm going to stick with in around the 12 to 15 reps, uh, with kind of a lower weight at the beginning. Yeah. And so Andrew, from the bottom of my heart, I apologize. <laughs> 
that that is what you have experienced in any sort of PT clinic. That is the antithesis of what we want or need to have in a rehab setting. Um, where By the someone, way, Angel would never do that. I would never. <laughs> that like kills me when some. Ugh. Um. So I'll be honest. It's like setting loads, especially with someone who you haven't worked with closely before, right? This is the first time they're walking into your clinic. If it's someone who has an acute exacerbation of neck pain, especially back pain, it's really hard to figure out where to start with the load. And I think very early on the first couple sessions, maybe the first three sessions, you guys are sort of like feeling each other out. And I think you guys have experiences from doing personal training and, and performance coaching and all that stuff where the first couple of times that you work with someone, you're kind of feeling out how they're cueing, what they're like, what they dislike. Um, uh, and you're sort of starting to mesh together. And so the first couple of times that you're setting a load for someone or doing an exercise with someone, it's extremely hard, at least for me, being someone who ha is just starting out. It's hard to be objective about it because you are scared of causing them pain, right? That's that's something that you don't want to recreate. That's the reason they're here to see you. Um, and the the fear of overloading someone, especially post-operatively. Operatively. But in your case, Andrew, it's the, the short answer is I would have taken a, a, a history of what your past medical history has been what you like to do. Like one of the questions that I ask is like, what do you do for fun? Like, have you worked out before? Have you ever been in the gym before? What experience do you have in the gym? Because that'll tell me a little bit more. Or if someone says, this is my first time, I don't know what that kettlebell is, or I don't know what that is. That's a kettlebell. I don't know what machine that is. Oh, that's a leg press. But if someone tells me, no, like I compete in weightlifting or I've done bodybuilding or I've done, like I play soccer, I play football, I, we work out regularly, then that's a whole different way of me setting it because I can ask them, what were you lifting before you got injured? And that gives me a baseline for where they were before. And maybe I'll cut that in half the first time. So if they were, if they were squatting a hundred pounds, let's go down to 50 on the leg press and see how you feel. And if that feels okay, all right, now I know next time I can bump that up a little bit more. Maybe it's 60 or 60 or 75 pounds. And obviously if the first time they did 50 pounds and they did four sets of 20, I'm like, all right, I can definitely push this person a little bit more. But again, it's going to be f the first couple visits, you're kind of feeling each other out and, and figuring out how is this person presenting? Because everyone's going to present a little differently. Yeah, it's a lot um, of risk reward with us. 100%. And so for me, the, the reward or the risk reward for loading them heavily the first time, which we're going to talk about in a second about doing one RMs, there's no reward for me there. It's just putting my license at risk. So I'm going to start a little lighter. Obviously, with someone like you who maybe had the neck pain and they put you on the lat pulldown, one, I would ask, why are they putting you on the lat pulldown? What is the rationale for putting you on the lat pulldown? And two, assessing, is that weight adequate for you? If it's not, then it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and I'm not going to have you one RM on a lat pulldown. There's no, <laughs> there's no need for that. Um, and so the first couple times, we'll get them going and then we'll progress linearly Kind of what I started doing towards the end um, or the last couple months or so has been trying to find something a little more objective. And so here's where we can talk a little bit about RPE 
and reps in reserve if you guys want to. Um, but what RP is, is rate of perceived exertion. And we can have a whole talk on RPE as a whole. Um, but essentially what it is, is someone tells you how much they exerted either on that set, on that exercise, or on that training session as a whole. I used it on a set per set basis just because it was easier for me than trying to get a whole RPE for the session, which I think you may use for the session, Andrew, or no? We do both. I'll tell a quick funny story. I think, Angel, you probably remember this. Yep. I think this was our BFR study. Yep. And the, one of the questions at the end of the of the day was, <laughs> okay, how hard was this on a scale one to 10? And people would say, well, you know, it's like a, a two or a three. And I'd say, well, you were just dying a second ago. Are you sure? And they were thinking, we're asking them, how does it feel right now that you're finished yep. with the exercise? Whereas I, like, no, 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 we wanted, how hard was this overall? And that's one of the and, things that I don't like about RPE because like, um, well, I'm trying to find it here in my notes. Okay. So like the issue, it's two things. One, someone will tell you that they were a 10 out of 10. But when I asked them, how many more reps could you have done? They're like, I could have kept going like 10, 15 more. And I'm like, well, then that's not a 10 out of 10. A 10 out of 10 is like, you're here like dry heaving because you can't like sprint anymore. You can't lift anymore. And then on the flip side, I'll have some of my like athletes well, I'll say, what, what was your RPE there? And they'll say it was like a seven or an eight out of 10. So the issue with RPE can be that one, it can be really hard to teach somebody, right? It can be really hard to visualize it, very hard to explain it, very hard to learn how to use it. And two, once you have learned how to use it, <laughs> it may not be the most accurate when it comes to um, weightlifting specifically, because this was intended to be like an aerobic measure like using it on a bike or on a treadmill or something like that. Um, so that's why I've sort of moved over into reps in reserve. And so what reps in reserve is, is essentially how much you have left in the tank. How many reps could you have done once? So if I told you we're going to do three sets of 10 and you finished the first set and I ask you, okay, how many more reps could you have done? Which is what I typically do with some of my patients very early on. How many more could you have done? Typically, if we're working on strength, I want them to be somewhere between three and five. Anything more than five has been shown to be less than 75% of your um, one repetition maximum, which we'll talk about why the, the importance of that is. But I want them to be somewhere between three and five. If I'm working on endurance, which is becoming controversial now, at least in the PT world, on whether endurance is something that we want to be working on, um, but if we're working on quote unquote endurance, right, 12 to 15 reps, I want them to have a little bit more, maybe five to 10 reps left, just because we're working on repetitions. Um, but I don't want them to finish a three by 10 and say, well, I could have done 15 more after the first set. If they're doing more endurance type exercises, I'm okay with them having a little bit more than five left in the tank. And so the first couple sessions, that's kind of where I start to um, that's what I use instead of a one repetition max. That's what I use to kind of tweak the load. Um, and so if the first session they're saying I could have done 12 more, 15 more, then I know maybe for that next set, I can up the weight, which usually comes with a groan or like a, are you serious? Or no, don't do that. But we do it anyways. And we explain to them why that's important. Um, so I know that was a little off topic, but I wanted to answer Andrew's question with how you are supposed to 
uh, administer, load, or um, handle a patient in rehab. <laughs> I feel like the RPE scale is very similar to like the pain scale. It's going to vary di- person to person. Um, you know, it's I deal with a lot of cardiac rehab as well. So easiest way to kind of gauge them, is, especially when we're doing the cardio aspect, is whether they're able to hold a conversation or not. You know, if they're yeah, able to hold a conversation talk, talk at a more. certain speed, you know, then you know, I know they're going to be lower down on the scale. If they're huffing and puffing and can barely get a few words out, then clearly they're a lot higher. If they fall off the treadmill and die, I mean, that's definitely a 10. That's a 10. <laughs> so there's a there's a study that we can probably link to that I was using as um, like prep for this one. It's called Application of Repetitions and Reserve-Based Rating of Perceived Exertion Scale for Resistance Training. So essentially, they found a way to tie in reps and reserve with RPE so that if someone were to give you an RPE or a reps and reserve, you can kind of work it backwards and use that to even get you like a repetition, like an R up, like a one rep max. So if they, they said if they were only able to do like two reps and they told you it was a 10 out of 10, you would assume right in a perfect world that is about 95 percent of their one rep max. And so it, it works it backwards, and I thought it was relatively useful. Um, but then I know that that is completely different from the way that you do it, Andrew. So can you enlighten us how it's on the other side? Are the, is, the, is the grass greener? Well, we use, uh, so I use actually a percentage of a, we call it estimated RM, or repetition max. And so we're basing off a percentage of if if we're doing sets of five, then we're going to do a certain percentage of that. So you can, good athletes can actually guess, or I should say trained athletes can actually guess what their maxes are. So if I ask them, how many times can, or how much can you squat for a set of three? They're going to be able to tell you within a couple percentage. uh, And they're pretty accurate with it. And so, We'll say, okay, so you're going to work at a percentage of, of what you think that max is. And it seems to work pretty well with, again, with trained athletes and people who kind of know their limitations. You do run into some issues where I think some people, if they've never maxed out or they uh, haven't been trained for a long time, they don't really know what they can do. They can usually do more than they think they can. So there's always limitations to these different systems that we use. I actually am doing a study right now with some of my weightlifters, unofficial study. Um, we're looking at RPE versus the system I use that I just described. And uh, we're basing that or we're using bar velocity as our comparison point. And so bar velocity, I think, has kind of taken over as the objective standard. And the reason for that with resistance training is the higher your RPE goes, the higher percentage your max you're using, the slower the bar is going to move, even if you're trying to move as quickly as possible. So we can actually look at bar velocity and predict how many reps you have left before you fail uh, or how difficult that, that is. And so it's really nice because you can now you can just use your phone and some software. I am actually put up a video on how to do it on your own so you can do this yourself. I was going to say I'd be curious and, to see how that's how that's done. Yeah, use your phone, use some free software. It's very simple. You can do it pretty quickly once you've gotten the, the hang of it. And so you can actually object, pretty much objectively see how your how your uh, loads are. Caveat to that, you do have to be lifting this kind of maximal effort uh, for that to to hold up. And that's kind of tough for some people. 
Uh, but it's good for athletes. It's a good system for athletes. So we're, we're kind of working our way through all of these different ways. I know that RP is really popular for a lot of the strength sports, but there's drawbacks to all these systems and they're all going to come down to this is a subjective measure and your perception of say an RPE, what an eight is to you when you start training is not going to be an eight to you a year later. Uh, even though it may feel kind of the same, you know that that's not really your eight. That's more like a six. Um, so you have to keep all these things in mind when you're when you're going through that. And so a lot of this, and, and we talked about uh, with Angel, the study we were doing and people misunderstanding what they were rating. That's another really important thing with these. You have to cl- be very clear about your rating system and how these different numbers are supposed to feel. Be honest and maybe with even... <laughs> Yeah, be honest with yourself, but also your your patients or your clients. And when you see them really struggling, and they say, "Oh, that was a 10, like Angel was saying, you say, "Oh, probably not. I would I would give that probably an eight. Yeah, and or you see them just dying and say, "Okay, you thought that was going to be a seven? That looked like more nine or ten. Kind of help them understand where Guide they are too. A bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. you have to be very careful about that. And I guess we can talk about this really briefly in that same study. No, it was just a completely different study. I'm sorry. In a different study that I was a part of, we used like formulas to determine one rep max. Have you eliminated that from your practice or no? That So I haven't used that a lot just because we can, we don't usually do max testing. Uh, that's something I'm sort of reconsidering because I was what, what I was just saying, some people don't understand how much they can do until they try Uh, so at some point with beginners and i'm talking within the first six months to a year of training it might be a good idea to do a one rm on a few exercises just so they get that experience Uh, but the but even the that sort of thing where you're estimating off of say a three or five rm we rarely are going to work at those percentages and so i don't know how useful that is we can also get into the situation where those are those change so often, uh, particularly the one repetition max, where it depends on your previous training, how you feel that day. If the person administering the test, if they make too big of a jump at the wrong time or too small jumps early on, you get fatigued. All those things are going to change your one repetition max. You it's my notes? You're probably. Yeah, you're probably yeah. I stole, stole this from Angel, by this. the way. <laughs> so it's it's not necessarily ever a true one repetition max. So you have to be really careful about setting load. Um, and one more really quick thing about that: what, what what your one RM was four weeks ago may not be your one RM a month later, because whatever your training you were doing and and how fast you're adapting that that changes. So you may have to have some sort of. It's probably best to have some system that's kind of adaptive to how you feel. Um, there's even a, an intuitive training that people study, and it seems to work pretty well with at least with less trained people. And so, if you come in, you don't feel good that day, go a little bit lighter. And and I agree with you 100%. I think a lot of our I don't do one RM testing because, like we talked about before, where Chris and I work, the risk reward isn't isn't quite there for us. I think it Same may. Have, what are you I talking may, about? I mean, I'm, I give my 85 year olds one RMs all day long. Come on. Oh yeah, brother. Quit being a no, pussy, Angel. <laughs> <laughs> no, and so like for example, like in for what you do, Andrew, like your sport is literally maxing out. Like that's how you get. That's how you compete, right? And so that that's where I think it would make sense. But what you're saying makes sense as well. Um, yeah, but, but I'll say really quick on that. We're usually 
not setting training loads off of our snatch and clean and jerk one RM. Gotcha. So gotcha. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. All right. Yeah. Um, but I think that a lot of if you were to do one RMs, a lot of it is based on how you slept the night before, how fatigued you are, your nutrition, all these other recovery things that we've talked about. That if if you haven't recovered optimally, then your one RM from yesterday isn't going to be the same thing for tomorrow. Um, but can, if I can play devil's advocate really quickly, then Andrew, um, normally, right. Do you normally do your cycles to be four weeks, um, six weeks, eight weeks? What do you do? Uh, two to six weeks, but typically four. And so then at what point do you begin to adjust the weight, right? Because you're saying if, if at a week or two weeks, your one RM is going to change, that means that the percentage that we're working at should change as well. Or are you saying we shouldn't be worried about the percentages as much? And we should focus on bar velocity or just clarify that for me. Uh, well, bar velocity could be one objective measure of, of this change. But what the system that I use is actually adaptive because you're estimating your, say, your three. If we're doing threes, you're estimating your three RM and basing your load off of that. If you're doing fives, you're estimating your five RM and estimating off of that. So there's it's adaptive in that sense that you might say, actually, you know, I think my... We went up to 95% last time. It didn't feel that bad. So this time we're doing fives on this cycle. I'm going to go up a little bit. Uh, but there's also some wiggle room there. I usually give a, a range of percentages. So if we're, say, doing 85% of our estimated RM, then really my range is 825 to 87.5%. And so if they're not feeling good that day, they can bump it down a little bit. If they feel like, okay, I want to push it a little bit, they can go a little bit heavier on that day. So there's actually a little bit of play there. Okay. I think that's a big takeaway is listen to your body and how you're feeling. If you're not feeling 100%, don't go don't try to do 100% that day. You know, back it off. Yeah, it's less chance of injury. You know, it's always think risk reward. That's what's, I mean. What's that watch? I don't know if you know this is getting a little bit off topic, but just just cuz that reminded me of something. What is that watch that measures your heart rate variability and stuff and takes like oh is that that, that uh, the like whoop wad? whoop whoop, whoop. It's something like that. have you have you seen anything on that Andrew yeah a buddy of mine had it yeah um, and it would like measure his uh, sleep and everything like that what is measured that? like sleep heart rate variability it measured um, resting heart rate and it would take all that into account and then it would give you a score I guess at the end like at the end of the day or in the morning. And let you know like how fatigued you were or how I need to look into it more, but I didn't know if you guys had read more on that. And it was it's essentially yeah, used as like a training tool. Yeah, yeah it's used as a training tool so you know how hard to go that day in the gym. Yeah. So yeah, if you slept like shit, then you can, you know, be a fat piece of shit all day long. <laughs> and that's probably based on some research. So uh, I don't want to get too into this, but if you've heard of overtraining. Uh, where which is actually a, a chronic fatigue state that's usually brought on by training but can also be from training while so stressed and not eating and doing all these other things um, but you basically get into a state where you no longer respond to training and some studies suggest that if you get really overtrained that might be a permanent condition um, and so one of the we're always looking for markers of overtraining because it's very difficult to to track and one of the or a couple of the different things that they what we look at are uh, sleep disturbances. So if you're not sleeping well, that's an indication of being stressed. Um, the other one is waking up with a high heart rate. 
and also uh, weight. If your weight is fluctuating quite a bit, um, those things may indicate overtraining. So I, I would just, I would think that that's kind of where that's coming from. Okay, cool. So we'll, we'll we'll look into that a little bit more. But it was it just reminded me with the whole one RM testing and stuff. Yeah, and even with all that, you know, especially with working with the older population, you know, that's one of the first things I ask them every day is, how are you feeling? Yeah, because they vary day to day. I mean, I have Parkinson's patients, ALS patients. Uh, so, you know, they got some good days, they got some bad days. So we're constantly adjusting the load, the, you know, the intensity of their workout. Um, so I think that's just a big thing. It's just pay attention to your body, you know, pay attention to your clients' bodies and how they're feeling and you adjust things appropriately. You know, them coming in and doing something is better than nothing, but something can't be way too much. And I still, Andrew and I spoke about this briefly before. There's an article that I haven't been able to find since we spoke about it. I need to find it where they took. They were talking about the all or nothing method, like, right? So if you like worked out really hard and then you worked out kind of hard and then you didn't work at all. And what they were showing was that like you should work at that 85 plus range. And then there should be days where you do active recovery. There shouldn't be days where you're doing 60, 70, 75 because you're blowing your active recovery. You're sort of like, doing yourself a disservice that it should be kind of like you go hard in the gym and then you take active recovery that when you fluctuate between that, when you work from the 60 to, to 80, that's where you kind of get into that overtraining because you're not giving yourself enough rest. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but that's kind of what they were talking about. That's kind of how I do my drinking. I go hard and then I, you know, recover. <laughs> and then stop cold turkey. <laughs> I'll never stop. <laughs> I wish people could have seen his eyes in that one when he said, I'll never stop. <laughs> My mom's probably listening to this too, so that's great. Hi, Mom. <laughs> yeah, I I think that's kind of interesting. I need to look at exactly how they were structuring that training. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's probably not too far off from the way that uh, my guys train yeah. in that we have uh, – one really one focus uh for our block so if we have a four-week training cycle or a block we might have a the focus of that block might be on squat strength and so we're building up to one day in that cycle essentially that's pretty much all out and everything else is just either building up to that um, or recovering from those heavy squat days and that might change the next time where it's a pool day. It, it, it changes. Um, but uh, my guess is that it's similar. You got to give your body enough time to rest between. If you're loading properly, you will need time to rest. But also don't over rest or don't overdo it where you need a week off. Because <laughs> that could be the opposite as well where you go 100% for a whole day's worth of exercise and you can't get out of bed. You can't get on the toilet. You can't do anything. <laughs> without being in pain. Anything else, Andrew? So, yeah, I have one other question for you guys. So, you know, you all probably more than I do use different implements like uh, kettlebells, particularly like resistance bands, which have a, a variable resistance. And so uh, how do you all use those? How do you guys um, kind of monitor the load with those? 
I really like the resistance bands because I can threaten my old people that I'll let go. They'll snap back at them if they don't do what I say. Savage. <laughs> so um, I'll use like resistance bands usually as a warm up, specifically for shoulders and stuff like that. If it's going to be like an overhead uh, press or, or something like that, I try to stay away from them other than for warm up stuff, just because you can't. Again, not that everything needs to be load, load, load. But everything should have a place in your, like in your program, that it serves a purpose, right? And so if it doesn't serve a purpose, it shouldn't be in there. Um, so the purpose of resistance bands for me is going to be for warm up. Um, I personally like kettlebells a lot, um, especially in rehab, just because one, a clinic may not have a barbell or a squat rack or any of those things, just because of resources resource limitations um and you can kind of do different exercises with a kettlebell that may be a little bit more fun for someone that finds resistance training kind of boring and especially with like the higher level uh, rehab patients like the athletes you can start actually mimicking the power cleans and uh, snatches and everything like that with a kettlebell so i think it's i, I love kettlebells they're great very versatile it doesn't uh, always need to be a barbell for us, at least. No. Um, because they're at a level where they're not getting up to the 85 95% because they're injured, using a kettlebell could be a little bit more versatile. Um, and then the way that we change the loading patterns, I think we talked about this briefly. You can go from two legs to one leg. You can change the depth that you're going. You can change the tempo that you're going at, um, which to clarify, by tempo, I mean that we're doing a slow eccentric and a relatively quick concentric. You're not slowing down the whole movement. Um, and then I think the, the external load, how it can be manipulated, I think the biggest one for rehab is going to be BFR. Um, Andrew and I have talked about this off-air quite a, quite a bit, where I like BFR for early stages of rehab because it allows us, it gives us the ability to load, pseudo-load someone, um, and by that, I mean that it recreates the same environment in the body that you would at a higher load without putting them in a position to get hurt. Um, but I think that there's no replacing a barbell if someone is a barbell athlete or a sport athlete, because our bones and our tendons also need to be able to respond to those stressors of sport, those stressors of lifting a heavy barbell that you won't receive with BFR. Um, so the muscle may get stronger, the muscle may get bigger, but right, hypertrophy, it may, it may grow a little bit, but it's not going to prepare the bone and the tendon, or at least I don't think there's any research that supports that bone and tendon is also affected by BFR. Um, and so I think one that, that'll be a good early stage, early to mid stage um, adjunct to therapy, but once you get to the higher level stuff, there's no replacing kettlebells. There's no replacing barbells. There's no replacing heavy weight to get you to where you need. And to I guess to clarify, we've been tossing around the BFR quite a bit. So that's the blood flow restriction. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> For those who don't know the acronym. Um, and I know you guys did a study together with it. Um, I don't think I've read that. So, yeah, if you guys have copies of it, I would love to read that and 
I've got kind a whole of brush up a little bit on it because it is fairly newer concept. Uh, it's something that I've never seen. You know, I've read about it a little bit, but uh, not in depth. So it, it'd be interesting to brush up on that and even have a talk where we kind of let you guys go and talk about this study. Well, quickly, I, I, one of the things that I did in PT school was we did like a theory paper on using BFR with patients with heart failure. And Andrew may have some thoughts on that, but we can talk about that a whole another day. <laughs> Blood flow restriction. <laughs> so what do you, you turning off the gas, you, you're choking them out a little bit while they're doing stuff? <laughs> yeah, man. And actually, when yeah. we published There's... the paper, Japan came out with a study backing us up that they actually took patients with heart failure and did BFR with them. And they had like some really good uh, uh, data. So... Yeah, Whatever, there Chris. there were some studies that are have been out for a few years showing that BFR actually is not a, a risk for any cardiovascular issues. Um, I'll say really quickly, my study is now published. It, if you just search for uh, resistance training for people with osteoarthritis and blood flow restriction, it'll come up. Um, and that one, you were talking about the bones. That was actually, we looked at a bone marker as part of my dissertation, and that was the reason oh, really? to see if, if yeah, oh, to see that. if we we're actually stimulating bone growth with BFR. Uh, we didn't really see any differences between uh, the BFR and our control group. Our control group was also using light load, so I don't think either group was really going to stimulate much bone growth. You're saying like if you had someone with a higher load, you think they would have? Yeah, and so the bone growth really is stimulated by actual bending of the bones. And probably pulling from the tendon. Yeah, right, exactly. So those attachment points, hypertrophy, but also the, the shaft of the bones itself. And so if you're using light loads, I think in my study, at most they're using, I think, 60% of one repetition max. It's been a while since I looked at that. Um, but that's probably still not quite enough to stimulate much bone growth. Was this like a pit potential for uh, uh, osteoporosis? Yeah, and th that's one thing I was interested in maybe continuing if I'd stayed with that was looking at this for people yeah, training with bone issues as well. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of applications for it. Um, also space travel. But, yeah. That's another thing they're looking at to see if, we could, if you could stimulate bone growth through BFR. It'd be really good yeah, gotta, in space. You gotta send that space force up to uh, Mars there, right, boys? <laughs> Fucking right. Yeah. We're all gonna be putting blood pressure cuffs around our legs. <laughs> all the way to Mars. Well, they already do it for fighter pilots. Should be fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll give another tip really quick. Since we were talking about resistance bands a little bit ago, find out in your gym which uh, bands are older and a little worn. Oh. And then you can you can use like the really big ones, and people will think you're super strong. That that's what that's Andrew does. In the that's exactly. Yeah, he gets what he the does. old. I'm giving band. away the yeah. game. <laughs> I was like, oh man, he's using the purples. Like, yeah. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> my question with you know because. I've been seeing a lot of the power lifters. You got the uh, bench press rigs with the uh, band attachments on the bar. What do you guys think of that? Do you, now, do you use anything like that, Andrew, with your So like lifters? the chain, are you talking about the chains or are you talking about the TheraBands? No, they're actually using the, like the a bands. big TheraBand. And I've done it. I actually do it at home as well. So it's, especially I got shoulder issues. I've had, you know, all sorts of problems what I, with them. Quickly before Andrew answers it, what I like about that is that it keeps like it'll force you to work on the eccentric portion right no on the concentric portion 
it'll get easier as it's coming down and then harder as yeah, you're pushing harder up. as you're going up. So I guess it just depends on where your sticking point is, but I think Andrew can answer a little bit. And that was my question was whether you guys use it for sticking points or not. Yeah, so sticking points, you can actually do isometrics at the sticking point, but then you just move your sticking point. The band is actually, so as you get, say on a bench press, as you get close to lockout, you're actually in a very mechanically advantageous position. And so it's, you know, you'll see people get stuck about maybe a little bit off their chest or maybe halfway, but you rarely see someone fail at, at lockout. And so the band is actually adding resistance at that point where you're more mechanically advantaged and now you have to actually work through that lockout point. And so the argument, I guess, would be, is that really a place that needs to be trained if it's not the limiting factor? You could argue that. With weightlifting, the issue with that when we're doing exercises that aren't ballistic, which means you have to control them all the way through the range of motion, uh, you actually have to decelerate the bar as you get to the top and slow down so that you don't shoot it throw out of the bar. And But in weightlifting, that's what we're trying to do, essentially, is throw the bar at the top and uh, and actually keep the bar moving at the end of our true range of motion. And so would the bands really be applicable for helping weightlifting? I don't know. I don't know that people have necessarily looked at that with high-level weightlifters. Um, then we could talk about the uh, was it the Vertimax. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I like yeah. that train system. So you know, and that actually will will change the uh, the force characteristics of a jump if you look at that. So is that going to help translate to a, an unweighted jump? Uh, that's probably an episode or two on its own. Vertimax <laughs> versus like a X bar deadlift to jump. Yeah, and actually, if you look at say a weighted vest jump or a dumbbell jump or a barbell jump, uh, all those different loading conditions actually change the force velocity characteristics of the jump and how the joints are loaded throughout that movement. So yeah, it's, it's tough to know if that's actually going to translate. Coming back full circle that we were talking about type of external resistance. So how we use other things other than just uh, barbells to load somebody. Wrap up. Questions, comments, concerns, fellas. Anything else? Please direct them to the Silver Fox at. (laughs) (laughs) For those that haven't seen the YouTube, Andrew is a Silver Fox. Beautiful Silver Fox. You know. That was a good, uh, I liked your recent video on, uh, um, Going back to the gym. On the YouTube? Yeah, the COVID. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was good. I just I just put up a new one. Uh, I forgot what it's about. Oh, it's me going off. You want to hear me go off about uh, people coming back. So there was a survey, and this is something we can talk about really quick. Yeah. Survey came out that a quarter of people aren't going back to the gym ever because of the COVID what? stuff. And Fuck them. We don't so, want them anyways. Yeah. So there's a survey about it. There's some interesting comments on the survey. So I kind of broke those down. It's a shameless plug for my YouTube channel. So if you want to look at that lame performance on YouTube, check it out. Actually, you know what really got Andrew? So we got to start a, uh, a what grind segment. What grinds Andrew's gears? <laughs> yeah. I don't think I sent it to you, Chris, but I guess the state of Florida um, in conjunction with CrossFit um tried or did pass a law or passed 
I don't remember what it was, but essentially said that CrossFit coaches are allowed to um, give nutritional advice. Oh, fuck that. that yeah. Is, oh, my God. Yeah. That is, that is the biggest – oh, fucking Christ. <laughs> God, no. The, 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 the fucking exact, hate CrossFit. The, the exact text that I got from Andrew was, that's not real, right? He's like, that can't be real. Like, there's no way. So here it is. Hold on. It says, um, going back to our CrossFit rant from the other day, Florida enacts, enacts Occupational Freedom and Opportunity Act. Governor Ron DeSantis signed the Occupational Freedom and Opportunity Act, permitting CrossFit trainers across the state to provide nutritional guidance to their members and clients. Previously, Florida law only permitted dietitians and other select licensed professionals to provide nutrition recommendations to their clients. It's insane to me. So I think what we need to do is get a dietitian on here and talk yeah, about this. That was I want to try to reach out to uh, a friend of mine who's a dietitian we did undergrad with each other um, back in we Canada. We need to because so. that's, that's crazy. Yeah, I got to reach out and get a hold of her because that's – Oh my god, it's Yeah. And then people we'll, are saying we'll that like licensing doesn't guarantee competence. But that's like the whole point of having I a mean, license. Like yeah, I mean that's cause, true. Cause if you're not competent, we can take away your license. <laughs> yeah. But also I'll, I'll take someone over who has a license probably has a better chance of being competent than people who don't, especially if you can get sued yeah. for it. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah. Yeah, we need one. Get someone on here to talk about. It, and two, I'm gonna get some blood pressure medication before we do because <laughs> I'm gonna blow a gasket. Could you imagine Andrew's gonna die on his podcast? Well, think about you know you get into a comment section and anything with nutrition, and half the people are like, "Man, the only reason you have to go to the gyms because of that sugar." <laughs> the sugars. Can you imagine those people actually giving <laughs> diet plans? You guys gotta read. People? You guys gotta read the comments under this uh, article. I'll send it to uh-huh. you guys. I'll have a heart attack. Oh man, it's great. That's, that's ridiculous. God, I can't wait so, till that fucker is voted out. Yeah, not to get political at all, but DeSantis is a fucking twat. <laughs> and that's where we'll edit that out. And that, that we'll talk to the lawyers about yeah. that. Um, that's all right. I'm Canadian. I can't vote anyways. <laughs> this guy's killing me. Oh, I told you those beers would get me. I haven't eaten anything today. <laughs> Drunk Chris is the best, Chris. This is going to get deported. Angry right? Buzz. <laughs> get deported because <laughs> of his podcast. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, gosh. I can well, still do the um, shit from Canada. We have fucking internet in our igloos. <laughs> All right. We got to let Chris on go. That, on that note. <laughs> Uh, uh, shit. This has been the fitness podcast. Uh, we might see you all next week if we're still here. <laughs> if not, I'm not suicidal. I'm not suicidal. It's been real. It's been Come fun, look. but it hasn't been real fun. <laughs> uh, all right, guys. We'll see you guys on the next episode. Bye, guys. See ya.